Um, it is, uh, it probably is apparent, but I don't, I don't, I'm not one of those people that just loves to work out. Um, don't laugh too hard. I'm still sensitive about it. Okay. Um, I, and you know, there are two people that types of people that work out. I think they're the kind of people that work out because they feel like they need to, and it's a labor and they do it because they're disciplined. And then there are that, like there's that, you know, 3% that the rest of us can't stand because it's just their hobby and they love it. They just love it. It's their thing. And they're going to act like they don't love it. But we know they love it. Like it's just their thing and they're so excited to talk about it and the rest of us don't like you for that. And that's okay. Um, but if you ever talk to these people, they're really excited every now and then when they have one of those workouts. And they went, man, my workout Tuesday was brutal. Man, just, man, I've been feeling it all week. Like I'm so sore, I can hardly walk. And I'm like, what is wrong with you? Um, I think our text this morning is a workout like that. And, and, I, and I want to give it in that context because I want you to know it's going to be, I think, incredibly convicting. It is for me. I think it will be for most of you. The reason is it's so countercultural. It's so against the way that we, are, that we think, especially here in the Western world. It's so against what we've been brought up to believe. It's, it, it, it really is countercultural. And so it's going to be really convicting, and it, and it is. But that's not a bad thing. That's not that you leave this morning and go, oh, man, I feel so discouraged. That's not it. We dig into God's Word, and we are sharpened, and we ought to come out of it like that crazy guy who loves to work out and be like, "Woo! I'm going to feel that one for like a week. That's messing with me. And so I want you to know, it, it's going to be sensitive, and it's going to be convicting, and it will be hard. Again, it is for me, I promise. But it's so good. So good. I, it will be that because we're going to talk about something we stress and we worry about so much as Americans, so much as people. Do you know they asked um, the top things that people stress about? Here they were, health, relationships, and money. Health, relationships, and money. They got a different answer when they asked them, what are the top things that you worry about? The number one thing people worry about in America is their personal appearance. Thought that was interesting. How they appear to others. The second thing that they worry about is money. The third thing that they worry about is health. When you read through those studies of the things that we stress and the things that we worry about, you can't help but see our self-centeredness. The American Psychological Association said that financial worry served as a significant source of stress for 64% of the adults in America in 2014. 64% of us worried, stressed over money. Women were more likely than men to stress over money. 68% of women compared to 61% of men. And we've all heard that thing, you know, where you would stress about money if you didn't have it, right? They found absolutely no difference in the stress levels between those who made more than $50,000 a year and those who made less. That's an important line because that's right in line with the average household income here in Washington County where we're at. No difference. They still worried about their money just the same. And so this morning, the context for our sermon and 
where Jesus is going to take us is going to have us talk about money. And listen, it's not rocket science to why Jesus talks so much about money. It's not because he was really overly concerned with money. He never really cared that much for money. It was either just, eh, it's there, it's not, who really, who cares? Belongs to Caesar, give it to him. Jesus wasn't really wrapped up in money. He, he saw it more as, as a tool, but listen, money represents value. And this is why he talked about it so much. Because money represents value. We exchange money for the things that we value. I mean, really, in and of itself, that little paper that we carry around in our purse or our billful, does it really matter to you, that piece of paper? It doesn't. What matters to you is the value that's associated with it. And so money is a tool in which we measure and exchange for value. We value health. We value quality of life. And so we give the doctors and we give the pharmacists. We value food. See, now that's something I can get excited about. Not so much the working out, the food. Some of you, I'm looking at you, some of you are saying amen and you're not having to say a word. You're right there with me. And we value food, and so we give the farmers and grocers and pals and Tupelo honey. Some of us value comfort. And so we give to, you know, Sleep Number and Lazy Boy and Toyota. Whatever makes our life easier. We value entertainment, and almost certainly in our culture, way too much so, and we give to Netflix and to Apple and to the golf course. We value the gospel mission. So we give to the church and to the IMB and YMI and mission organizations like it. See, money describes our value. And if you track our spending... If you track it, you will track what we value. And so Jesus talked about it a lot. One-third of all the parables, all the illustrations that Jesus gave, use money. He talked about money a lot. It's a tool. And like any tool, like a gun, it is incredibly helpful were devastatingly harmful. And this is really the summary of what Jesus had to say about money. It will devastate your life and it will harm you. Or it will be a great tool to help others and to help advance the kingdom of God. And so we find ourselves in Luke chapter 12, beginning in verse 13. It's a great passage and I'm really excited to dig into it with you beginning in verse 13 someone in the crowd said to him teacher tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me but Jesus said to him man who made me a judge or arbitrary over you and he said to them there must have been a crowd of people around he said to them take care And be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. So Jesus is out, and a man approaches him, and there is a dispute, there is an argument, it is a family argument, and it is over an inheritance. 
And we know that the argument is between two brothers. And one has approached Jesus and he said, listen, tell my brother. The assumption is my brother is doing something wrong. We can assume that the brother is withholding some portion of the inheritance that the other brother is expected. Tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. To divide it with me. To give me my portion. Now listen to what I'm about to say because it's going to teach us a lot about God and a lot about ourselves. And it'll be a little bit, it's that first, I think, wave of of uncomfort that we're going to feel this morning. Jesus was not concerned with the man's issue. The man's inheritance was so secondary to Jesus, he did not concern himself with it at all. Think about oftentimes the way we pray and the way we go to the Lord as we walk through this. The man comes up and he is wanting his inheritance. Jesus says to him, man, who made me a judge over you? This isn't my role. I'm not getting into it. Jesus doesn't take the time to listen to him, to hear him out, to ask him the details of the case. He doesn't take the time to say, well, were you really the one that was wronged? He doesn't even try to discern who is right or wrong because to Jesus it doesn't matter. It's just money. It didn't even matter. And so Jesus didn't concern himself to even answer the question. He didn't get involved. Instead, Jesus spoke to something so much more important. A real potential harm that it mattered too much to the man. He spoke to covetousness. This idea that he wants this, that he earns this, that that this money really has value. We have a false view of God. That he exists for our happiness a happiness that we get to define. And he exists like a genie. And that when we just want this thing really bad, if we'll just pray and ask God, he'll give it to us. But let me explain something. God loves us enough not to concern himself with our ignorance or our delusional aspirations of happiness and instead lead us to a true happiness that will only be found in him. And it is a great blessing It is a great blessing that God does not concern himself with these delusions that we chase and instead he pulls us to something of substance, to something that is real value. So many will preach and pursue a God whose concern is growing their money or their bank account or their possessions and they call it God's blessings. They call it God's blessing. Listen, the God who reveals himself in the Bible is concerned with our souls. He is concerned with our lives. John 10.10, Jesus says, I come to give them possessions. No. He says, I come to give them life. Life. This is what Jesus is wanting for you, life. Not just stuff. Life. That's core. And so he emphasizes that in verse 15 when he says, One's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. If the man's money and possessions really added to his life, then Jesus would have been concerned over his inheritance. But it didn't, because life doesn't consist of money or possessions. 
And this springs Jesus into a parable, and I really uh, like a little mini sermon, and it has its own mini sermon outline that we're going to follow. And as we go through it, I want to remind you of a verse that we have in Luke chapter 9 that is very familiar to us, and I want it to kind of be a theme that you would keep in your mind as we walk through this. Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world? all the possessions, all of the money. What does it profit if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits his soul? And so Jesus springs into a sermon, and like any good sermon, he has an opening illustration. In this case, it's a parable. Verse 16. He's told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man produced plentiful. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax. Eat. Drink. Be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We find a farmer or a landowner. Nothing wrong, nothing sinful with being a farmer or a landowner. He is very prosperous, nothing sinful or wrong with being very prosperous. He is so prosperous, in fact, that he continues to harvest beyond his personal capacity. Nothing wrong with being more prosperous than your own personal capacity. And so... To enlarge his capacity, he tears down his small barns and he builds larger barns so that he can store up what he's harvested. Listen, nothing wrong with building bigger barns. When I was a kid, I kept all my money in a jar in my bedroom. Don't break into my bedroom. You will not find a jar with my money. You thieves, do not do that, right? Listen, I now use a bank. I have more than $20 in $1 bills, right? So I use a bank. Nothing sinful. There's nothing wrong with planning. There's nothing wrong with being a good steward of the prosperity that God has given you. This is not the man's sin. The man's sin is found in his motive and in his heart. We have to be so careful that we do not become legalistic when we think of the things that we value. It is such a stumbling block. The man's heart, the man's motive, is where the man finds sin. He says to himself, soul, right? Soul. You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. His aim was the treasure for himself. Jesus explains it in the end. He says, he built up treasures for himself. 
his motive, his heart for building those bigger barns wasn't so that he could give the overflow. He built bigger barns so that he could relax. His aim was his retirement. His aim was his comfort. His aim was his party to be merry, to enjoy life. His aim was the illusion of self-sufficiency. That I somehow take care of myself. That I can meet my own needs. That if I just have enough, I'll be satisfied and I will not need from anyone else. See, this was his thought. My soul. I've built these bigger barns. I can now rest. I can retire. I can check out. I have made enough. And instead, God calls the man a fool. I think that's interesting because I think many of us today culturally would call that man wise. We might even call him a good steward. We may say he's a good planner and he's done well to take care of his family in the future. And yet God looks at that man and calls him a fool. He calls him a fool because that very night will be his last. He will not wake up in the morning. And all those things, all that stuff he accumulated, whose will it be, God asks? He calls him a fool. The man gave no evidence of being rich toward God. None. He only had a barn full of stuff that he held on to as an illusion of value and worth. Despite the fact that this is our struggle, we ought to be able to look into someone else and see it more easily. This man is sad and lost. That a barn full of stuff was what he valued. That a barn full of stuff was what he found worth in. I wonder how many of us, I wonder this of myself, how often am I holding on to a bunch of stuff more than being rich toward God? You say, you keep saying that rich toward God. What does that mean? We find that there in verse 21. It says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Rich toward God, the best way to understand it, it's it's a great translation, by the way, is the opposite of laying up treasures for yourself. The context in which it's given is not found anywhere else in the Bible. It's just right here. And so the easiest way to understand it is to understand it as the contrast. The man was a fool because the man's motive was to build up treasures for himself. And instead, Jesus says, no, you can be rich toward God. You can invest in the treasures of God. One of the things I think as a believer that we can continue to invest in the treasures of God, one of the things I really think is neat and a great example is what we saw this morning in cohort two. There's lots of other things they could spend their time and their money doing. Now listen, they can pursue education just for head knowledge and not for heart and make it about them and be selfish. Do you know why most of those guys, if you talk to them, why they're doing that? They want to be better husbands. They want to be better moms. It's worth the money. It's worth the investment. No generation ever that has lived has had more resources to study God's Word, to dig deep into it than us. The software that is available, 
the books, the library that is available. And yes, it will cost money and somebody's not just going to come bring it to you. But man, what a great investment. The number of people that are around us who are in real need. Rich toward God. And so Jesus makes the point that life is more than our possessions. Verse 22, he said to his disciples to make sure that they got it. Therefore, I tell you, don't be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Notice he's talking about food and clothes. This is not exactly a trip to Best Buy, right? These are necessities. These are necessary expenses. And viewed against us today who live so far beyond our necessity, if Jesus is saying that our life is more than clothes and food, how much more is it than the things that we spend our money on, the things that we hold up as valuable? How much more does that convict us whose pursuit of leisure drives our culture? Then if I ask, and I, even if you were to ask me, and you ask my little girl, why does dad work? Now, she's going to give you some answers like about food and stuff. But she's going to talk about like wallabies and things like that, you know. So much of the way that we think is we go to work so that we can have fun. I'm not saying it's wrong in and of itself. Listen, I'm not. But I am questioning what I value, what I find worthwhile. Because Jesus is saying that the clothes and the food that we eat, this isn't what life is about. And I've been blessed so much that I am so far beyond clothes and food. I wonder what that says about me. This has been convicting for me. And Jesus moves on, and I think this is hard, and so he calls them to meditation. He calls them to think. He says in verse 24, consider. Anytime you see the word consider in Scripture, it is a charge to meditate. Not just think about it for a second, but spend your day, your week, wrestling with the truth that what God is presenting. Here he's going to challenge us to consider our own limitation. He says, consider the raven. They neither sow nor reap. They neither have storehouses nor barns. Fancy way of saying they don't control their own circumstances and they don't have 401ks. There's no backup plan. There's no savings account. And yet God feeds them. How much more value are you than birds? Now listen, and which of you being anxious can add a single hour to his lifespan? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? So if life is really what is important, and you can't add a single hour to your own life, you have that little of control that you can't make yourself live one second longer than the Lord has sovereignly ordained. Then why are you worried about the rest? You're worrying about things that are insignificant. 
If your life is the core of who you are, your very existence, and you can't control an hour of that, why worry about the rest, Jesus says. See, worry is based on the illusion of control. God says, consider your lack of control. Consider your own limitation. And then he goes on and he gives us a second thing to consider. He says, consider the sovereignty and the love of God. Verse 27, consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even which is alive in the field today and tomorrow, I'm sorry, even I tell you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more, how much more will he clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things. And your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and these things will be added to you. After considering our own limitation, Jesus challenges us to consider God's sovereignty and His love. God is at work. Listen to this. Think about this. Let this blow your mind for a minute. God is at work painting every pigment on every flower in all of creation perfectly to the way He has called it to be. It is not random And the fact that it is not random blows our mind. The fact that it is not just set in place and it's just happening. But the fact that there is a God who is so sustaining and so sovereign that every pigment of every flower that is fleeting within the day is controlled by Him ought to blow our mind. God says, consider this. Consider the detail. Consider the control of God. And then consider that God, that creator, that sustainer. Consider his love for you. A love for you that while you were his enemy, while you were in sin, he loved you so much that he gave himself, that he gave his only son to pay the penalty for our very sin. A God that loves you that much, that through faith in Jesus, that through grace has adopted you into the very family of God, and His own Spirit testifies that we are now children of His, that we belong to Him, adopted into the family of God. Listen, think, consider how much that God loves you. And you're worried about food and water? You're worried about your iPad? You're worried about your car? What size house you have? God has came to give us life. Life. How much more valuable are we than those flowers? It's a profound thought. God knows your needs, he says. Trust him with your today and make your focus his kingdom that is eternal. 
Trust Him with your today. And make His kingdom your focus. See, this is what the fool missed. His self, his treasures were his focus. Jesus goes on and like any good, good sermon, he gives some clear applications. He's going to give us a couple. The first application is to not be anxious. Don't be anxious and trust in your inheritance. Verse 32, fear not, he says, fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom in Christ. Listen, for those of you who have placed saving faith in Jesus, Scripture teaches us that we are now joint heirs with Him. God has not just saved you to be slaves in heaven. God has brought you into an eternal relationship as a son. Joint heirs heirs he has given you the keys to the kingdom don't worry about today don't worry about your stuff the very eternal kingdom of god is your inheritance next he says this one's this one's harder sell and give today and invest in eternity Verse 33, sell your possessions and give to the needy. Let me say it one more time. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. Jesus says, sell the big bonds. Give it to those that are in need. God has blessed you with riches and provisions, not for your own selfish treasure, but that the love of the gospel might be shown through your generosity. Give, he says. Give. The early church, by the way, they practiced this. This isn't just something that's like there and a nice idea. Acts chapter 2, verse 44, And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. It goes on, Acts chapter 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul and No one said that any one thing that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. Listen, I'm just going to say it the way it is. The Bible's teaching in this isn't very um, Southern American. It's not very you work hard and you earn it and it's yours. It's not. The Bible's plan and what we see is a lot more redistribution of wealth that we want to complain about so much. It's what's there. That God has blessed you so that the love of Christ, so that the good news of the gospel might be seen through your generosity. This is what the early church practiced and this is what Jesus said. 
A great example of the tensions that I feel in this are in the example of the rich young ruler. Jesus was talking and a man walked up to Jesus and he says, look, I've kept all the commandments. I am good. And Jesus said, there's one thing you lack. And the man said, what's that? Go sell everything you own and come follow me. Now, is it wrong to own anything? Nope. What's Jesus speaking to? His money, his wealth, his prosperity? No. Jesus is speaking to his heart. Jesus, listen, is speaking to what the man values. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. What's so convicting to me about that story is I never want to see myself as the rich young ruler. I always see myself as the poor, kind of the middle class. Uh, about a month ago, I had the opportunity to speak to the kids in Awana. This is our close, so listen. And um, I, had, I, I wanted to show them, physically show them, the difference of the amount of money that they have here, the average family here, versus what most of the world lives on in a given day. And I remember at home practicing the illustration on my little four-year-old at that time. And I said, Lena, come here, I want to show you something. And I had 116 $1 bills, which would be, if you divide out by the day, which is uh, the average income here in Washington County in a day. $116, all in ones. Big, and I'm waving around, and he's like, whoa, we are rich, Right? And I said, Lena, I want to show you something. And I grabbed one of those. And I wanted to say, listen, this is what half the world lives on in a day. And I waved that big second and I said, this is what you have. And I didn't know what would happen. I really thought she'd just like, whoa, that's a lot of money. My little girl began to cry. It broke my heart. She goes, Dad, that's not, that's not fair. I'll give them some of my money. You know what made me cry? And that wasn't that she was kind. It was the hardness of my heart. It was the conviction that somehow I don't see myself as the one who's blessed. I don't see myself living so far beyond food and clothes that I wouldn't sell and I wouldn't give that there's so little faith in me that I would worry about tomorrow. We are the rich. The closing truth, verse 34, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Listen, this isn't a sermon about money. This isn't a sermon about giving. This certainly isn't a sermon about the prosperity gospel, that if you'll start selling and giving, God's going to provide you everything. Listen, you may sell your, all this stuff, and you may give, and you know what? You may have to downsize your house. God didn't promise him to give you another one. This isn't what I'm saying. If you're thinking that, you're missing the point. This is a sermon about our hearts and our response to the gospel. Is Christ your saving faith? Have you made him your treasure? If you haven't, 
this morning, it is as simple as crying out to Him in prayer, in faith, and saying, You are my everything. You are the Son of God who paid the penalty for my sin, and my faith of everything is in you. Save me. And for those of us who are in Christ Jesus, it is about overcoming our fear and to give in our prosperity, to give out of our riches that the gospel may be seen in the lives and in our testimonies. I'm going to ask the band to come on up and we're going to close in a song of response. We're going to sing a song called My Life is an Offering. There's a line in that song I want to draw your attention to and I want to challenge you to make it your prayer. It simply says, I choose to lose my life, Lord. I choose to lose my life and find it in you. Listen. Don't sing it just because there's words on a screen. Sing it because it's your response to who God is. Sing it because it's worship. I lose my life. My life will not be about me and my treasures. My value, my worth, my life is in you. That is your challenge of response this morning. Would you pray with me before we sing? Heavenly Father, this morning, I pray that you would change lives. But I pray that if there's someone here who doesn't know you, I pray your Holy Spirit would draw them to an everlasting relationship in your Son that would change what their life is about. Would I pray for those of us here who are Jesus followers, that belong to you. Lord, I pray that you would, in a way that does not just make us mope around, but in a way that challenges and compels us to change, that you would convict us to see ourselves with the opportunity to give in such a way to highlight the love of the gospel. May we collectively say this morning that we lose our life and we find it in you. In Jesus' name, amen.